if we're operating as those who are blessed, we don't have to fear anything. <laughs> we don't have to protect anything. We can boldly follow the one who calls us to die because what's death to someone who's who's already been into death and back? Brothers, welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. It's an honor to sit in this space with you. I consider it one of the greatest privileges of my life to get invited into your world as a like-hearted apprentice, as a man who's saying yes, as a man who's saying, I want more of me to belong to more of God. I want to be shaped by God. I want to be consecrated, given over to God. I want more of my kingdom entrusted to my care to be ruled by God, to reflect the heart of God, the life of God, the intentions of God, the pace of God, the purposes of God, the rhythm of God. Friends, we're recovering the ancient path together, and it's my honor to walk with you in the space. If you haven't read Becoming a King, it's really the on-ramp. Uh, Become Good Soil is the space that we unpack a lot of the details, and we go deeper in different aspects and dimensions of this fundamental message of the path and process of restoring the heart of a man. And I would encourage you to pick a copy of that up, grab the audiobook on Audible if you'd like that. But today, we're going into part two of a really life-filled conversation with Wynn Collier. As you will know from episode one, through a vibrant relationship with Eugene Peterson, he was entrusted to do the holy work of writing Eugene's biography. And one of the most beautiful pieces I loved in my conversation with Wynn was Eugene said, if you write my biography, hold nothing back. I don't want you to polish it. And I don't want you to try to put me in the best light. I want people to see me as an ordinary human being, being empowered by God, and responding to God in his life. When is the kind of man that can be entrusted with that kind of task? And I really wanted to take the time to dive into the man behind the biography. And so I'm really excited to take you into this part two with Wynn Collier, a like-hearted pilgrim on the narrow road that leads to life. And as I consider my time with Wynn, what I experienced in him was a depth of strength, a sort of powerful humility. He's the kind of man that finds himself rather comfortable and confident doing the simple, steady work that God has asked him to do. And it's my honor to invite you to notice the effect of a man who humbly serves a story bigger than himself. I think you're going to enjoy this. Let's dive in. In your story, I, I feel like this, this episode, I have a hunch, will be caught in this paradox of, I want to get to deeply rooted and trees don't get to move. 
the idea of place, the power of being rooted. But the paradox of that is your childhood. You grew up in a fifth wheel trailer, Amish built Mennonite craftsman in a factory in Indiana. And until sixth grade, you were a nomadic tribe. Tell, like, give, give us... Give us a story or a moment that describes what life is like on the road from birth till sixth grade. Yeah. Well, every um, Friday night, my family would load up in our trailer after. So my dad was a traveling evangelist. Mm -hmm. And so that meant that he would do week-long revivals Sunday morning to to Friday night. Okay. And we would do probably 45 of those a year. So we would be in 45 different towns a year. And Friday night, we would, after the evening service, we would load up the trailer and take off for the next place. And we'd usually stop at a rest area or a Kmart uh, a parking lot and sleep for the evening in the trailer. <laughs> and then I'd get up with my dad the next morning about six and we would start off for the rest of the ride. And my job was to look out for where we were going to eat breakfast, which normally <laughs> meant <laughs> looking for a Shoney's wow. or a, or a Frisch's or a big boys, depending on what state we were in. And, uh, so I was my dad's sidekick. We had CB handles. I was, uh, I think I was, I was the American Eagle. Very, oh, very, come on. very original. Um, <laughs> my dad's CB handle was the, uh, the circuit rider because that was the name of the Methodist preachers on horseback who would go from town to town preaching in the Methodist churches. And um, that was my life. And so we saw most of the U.S., saw all kinds of places and people and had a um, very close-knit family because it was just us, you know? Wow. But we we did the whole thing. I mean, it was in some ways, it was almost like the circus um, heading to town because we would sing as a family a couple nights a, a week. Oh we my had, gosh. We had the matching turtlenecks, you know, and <laughs> uh, kind of the whole, the whole shebang. Wow. What it, looking back and you just think of that whole scene, the traveling redemptive circus, what sticks? Like what, what, what's the, what do you see when you see with today's perspective? A lot of it's just, sort of scrolling memories, like almost like real. I mean, being in the front front of the truck with my dad and, you know, driving through the desert in California and just looking ahead and thinking we're never going to get anywhere. It looks like eternity in front of us. It it meant um, a little town in Indiana called Covington, Indiana, which became a regular space for us. And the people that befriended us there, um, there was one librarian, retired librarian in a little town of Covington, Indiana. Her name was Charlene Galloway. Mm. And I was homeschooled, obviously, because we were traveling constantly. Right. And she, um, I would just happened to be writing a major, I think it was fifth grade, writing a major paper. And she would take me out to lunch. Um, I mean, I don't even know what would have motivated her to do that. And then take me to the library and help me with my paper. And and um, Wimpy's Donuts. There was a another man in town who went by the name Wimpy, and they made donuts. And I'll, you know, basically every day he he'd give us donuts. And um, outside of uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, there's amusement park. Um, what was the name of it? It's still it's a big one even now. A uh, Kings Island. Okay. And and uh, 
the they right next to King's Island was a RV park. And so if your life is RVs, it's an entirely different culture. I mean, a way of life, a rhythm of life, the people that you meet, the places that you go, because you're always looking for places to park your trailer. You know, you know where the good hookups are, where they have sewer electricity and you're all loaded right there. Well, there's a large RV park right next to King's Island. And the guy who ran it uh, was real active in the Nazarene church. And he always um, gave us a place to stay. And he would show up at the door whenever we arrived with a big brown paper bag f- full of um, little coins like you use for arcade. Yes. Because they, they had an arcade at, at the uh, RV park. And my sister and I would play arcade games for the week. And he would give us tickets to Kings Island. We'd go to the amusement park and... I mean, I just remember the people that we met and yes. particularly the places that we went back to re- repeatedly and how they mm-hmm. became they became friends. Wow. Okay, so I want to hold that idea, that scene, the arcade, the the move this this nomadic tribe bookending it with your story of now growing through the decades, eventually pastoring for over a quarter of a century and being at the helm stewarding younger hearts at Western Theological Seminary and directing the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination. Um, The PhD work that you did, this just grabbed me when, when I saw this, where I had never found a person who essentially did a PhD focus on Port William and Jaber Crow. <laughs> and I mean, Port William's my favorite town in all of America. Yeah. And it just, my heart was captured by Jaber Crow. And listeners will know the, the history of that story. But it's really a, like you you said, this blend of literary fiction and the and the religious life of um Wendell Berry is one of the most rooted human beings I've ever encountered. You know, his whole sort of like you said, this um, this accidental theologian, he's rooted in place. It's all about plates. It's about deep roots. It's about relational intimacy and choosing, choosing to be present and embody the work of God. And so help me understand a nomadic life that you're born into and you find that your life's work ends up being about shepherding shepherds that are fundamentally called to root in a place. I find it like such a wild contrast. Yeah, I can see that. There's probably a couple different ways of thinking about it. I mean, one would probably be just the fact of moving so often created a hunger in me for knowing one place really well. Yes. But there's another way of, uh, perhaps as well, that um, if, even if you're nomadic, I mean, lots of the scriptures, lots of um, our Bible characters were nomadic. I think it's more about a posture. Like, mm-hmm. are you are you loving the place where you are? And are you expecting to find God there? Or are you just using the place where you are? And are you just expecting to find yourself there? Mm-hmm. And so I think there was something about going to all these places and 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 finding like each place had its unique texture and there was beauty. I mean, 
I I don't really have much time for anybody that dishes any place in the world yes. as if as yes. if it's not beautiful. Um, I mean, we each have our own things that awaken us the most. I mean, for me, maybe like you, I'm guessing where you live, but for me, it's it's the mountains, um, water in the mountains particularly. But I I mean, the cornfields of Iowa are splendidly beautiful, you know, mm. and um, an urban in, inner city uh, can be splendidly beautiful. Mm. And we can also mar an, uh, a mountain or um, a cornfield or an urban city. And so I think some of it is just having my imagination awakened over and over again with each place I went and each new horizon on a Saturday morning, looking out that windshield of the Ford, our Ford F-150 and seeing something new and beautiful. But then I, I think the deepest thing is just the more I tried to step into what it means to follow Jesus mm-hmm. and the more I was captured by the story of the incarnation of how God in Jesus became very particular, um, that that's, that's captivating for me. And it leads me to expect to find grace in very particular ways, wherever we are. And that leads itself to, to going deep. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. It's about loving a place. And, and, and I hear, you know, it's interesting, you're tapping into an idea I've captured from Wendell Berry that I so appreciate where he says the the line isn't drawn between sacred and secular, but it's between sacred and desecrated mm-hmm. places. And so right. to see the sacred through all things. Right. So I, I, what I want to do in light of that, um, you, obviously a, a, a well-established um, author and one of the books you wrote, Love Big, Be Well. I see the like-heartedness of you and Eugene in the pages. I see the like-heartedness of you and Jaber Crow mm-hmm. and Wendell Berry. There's just this, uh, in a campfire in the kingdom, it would be really good to be a part of that campfire mm. and share those conversations. Yeah. Um, I want to visit this book as a way of getting to know you and a way of getting some visibility on your process, your path of recovering this ancient road and becoming a disciple and and stepping into mystery and wonder and curiosity and eventually through that process becoming the kind of shepherd yourself that shepherds the hearts of other people. And so I first want to ask, um, you know, you, you say in the book that um, you, you have this quote in the book, in fiction... I think we should have no agenda except to be truthful. Mm. And the, boy, that just feels like the, the, the really cunning strategy Wendell Berry used with Jaber Crow was it seems like a way of telling the truth of his own life in a way that was more powerful than telling the true story of his life mm-hmm. by using the fiction. I'm curious if that's some of Wynne Collier hidden in the in that pastoral life of Jonas in these letters. Can you tell us a bit about your work, Love Big, Be Well? What it is, what the context is, and is it true that much of it is a is a powerful way to tell your own truth through fiction? Yeah, so it started with a, a friendship. So Love Big, Be Well started with an email I received from a friend 
who was on the search committee at her church. And their pastor had just left, and she was part of the team that was beginning the process of searching for a new pastor. And she just wrote me and said, you know, talked a little bit about their story, which I pretty much knew, and and then said, you know, what what kind of advice would you give to a search team who's who's starting this out? And in her email, I picked up what I thought was what I what I thought I was hurting of just immense exhaustion. Yes. At the even beginning of this process. And I was probably importing into that as well, my own exhaustion, because I've been in those kind of conversations before, and it's often very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I found myself writing a story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, the story started, it's the opening uh, chapter in Love Big Be Well, where um, Amy is writing this letter to this, whoever their future pastor might be. And I just, uh, I think there is a lot of me in there, not in particulars probably, yes. but certainly in passion and heart and view of the world, maybe some of the kind of pastor I would like to be. I remember once Eugene was talking to me about the book and he said, when if I could have been that honest with the congregation, I could have stayed there forever. Oh, and I remember smiling oh. and then thinking, "Me too." <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know. Yes. Um, and so, um, th- yeah, there was something about about the character Jonas that I I found myself delighting in, even with his foibles and um, the mistakes he would make and that sort of thing. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Okay, so I want to get into some of this honesty because I think it's provocative as I consider this fellowship of men that are deeply committed to the slow and steady work of becoming. You know, the 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 this fellowship when is about recovering the ancient path to become wholehearted stewards of God's kingdom and you do like cut to the truth in such love and such enticing and disrupting ways of of it's of leading us back to to life and to into community and to the intricacies of how we do how we you know I mean really how we love big and how we be well truly so I want, I want to visit a few page 107. There's this idea that you talk about, you borrow from a Lewis quote. Um, the world is crowded with God and you're, and you're speaking of prayer and you go on to describe from his quote that God walks everywhere incognito and the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember to attend. In fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. This idea alone could dismantle much of what we've all been taught about prayer. I I was really caught up in this idea where God walks incognito and the world is crowded with him and how that relates to your invitation uh, through this Jonas character to reconceiving prayer what does that evoke in you? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that we say this 
hopefully we don't say it too blatantly, but I think that many of us somehow imbibe the idea that prayer is our attempt to move toward God, to get God's attention um, when God is always so immediately close. Mm. Um, you know, Augustine would talk about that God is closer to us even than our own breath because we could not breathe if it were not the life of God that were was breath within us. So the whole paradigm that acts as if there's something we must do in order to be near to God is missing um, the entire message of scripture, which is it is entirely from beginning to end gift. All that we need to do is recognize the gift and say yes to it. Mm. I mean, the the lie is that God is ever far from us. Um, the 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 sin is that we believe the lie that that God could ever be far because God is always near. I mean, the psalmist talks about how how um, uh, God is is in the the earth that, that holds the earth together. And I, I just choose to take that rather straightforwardly that even the ground that I'm walking on is filled with the love of God, that I would not be able to stand on this earth if it were not the love of God that was making that possible. And it makes all the more absurd the, the ways that we um, act as if um, we can actually run from God I mean, I mean, we obviously can run, but <laughs> but the, the, it's a mirage to think that God isn't always right over our shoulder and right in front of us before we step into the next to the next step, and mm. that God's love isn't carrying us. And so, it, it just it, it's an invitation to um, cry, Uncle, cry mercy, mm. to surrender to the love that is always near. To me, that is the heart of prayer. That's, you know, the great, the great ones who, who have led us into deep places of prayer. These are the kinds of things they're trying to unearth and come up with language to say, God is here. Um, God is, God is as near as, as you nearer to you than you are to yourself. So, so follow this God, speak to this God, hear this God, live with this God. Mm. Um, I find it hope. Oh, when it, I feel in like buoyed, right? There's something in my heart that I, I I feel my shoulders relaxing, and I feel this this ease coming in of like, what if, what if that's possible? Okay, so I want to tie it to this very um, th this next idea that really dovetails with your thoughts there, because you 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 write very disturbingly in the most winsome way about the power of blessing. Mm. And I, I think Dallas Willard's writing on blessing really opened my eyes up to 
blessing is not um, merely inspiration or emotion, but there's something being enacted mm-hmm. in the spiritual realm to bless. And therefore, I understand even more the distinction to be blessing and cursing. And he suggested that every act we do is either one of blessing or one of cursing. And in one of my favorite chapters, letters from Jonas in the book, you write about blessing. And what what you're saying through Jonas is, you know, it's this beautiful picture of that moment of a shepherd of souls, a wise guide over his congregation, you know, speaking thousands of years old, the blessing over the people. And he's describing that heart-centered moment where he says, I move slowly because these benedictions are too sacred to rush through. Passing a blessing may be a pastor's truest work. I'm charged with the responsibility of reminding you that God loves you welcomes you and that you are not alone. And really when it it caused me pause to think a pastor's truest work, what if it is to truly bless, to remind the soul and the community of God's love manifesting here and now the welcoming presence and that we are not alone. What, what do you hear in those words? Well, my mind goes to just this last week. So we have two doctor of ministry cohorts at the Peterson Center. One of them is for pastors. It's called Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. Okay. And the other one is for writers. It's called the Sacred Art of Writing. And one of my, so, I mean, this is a place definitely where Jonas and I, (laughs) some of wind came out. Um, Passing a blessing over people that I know and love Mm. that I know if there happened to be church on a Sunday morning, that they're there and I can look at them in the eye and I know the sorrows that they're carrying. I know the questions that they're wondering whether or not they can believe in God anymore. They're wondering whether or not this story is true. They're wondering whether or not their family will make it. They're wondering whether or not next month when they get the next bad bit of news from the doctor, how many months they're going to have to click off of their calendar before their final breath is drawn. And to stand in the name of the living God in that place Mm. and to catch their eye and to linger there for just half a second so that they know you really see them Mm. and then to give them words that are not your, that are at least in the the, the deepest way, they're not your own. <laughs> yes. They are echoing the heart of God for them. Um, I mean, to me, that is the epicenter along with, you know, serving the Eucharist. Right. Which is the same thing. It's, it's eating a blessing, <laughs> mm, mm. you know, uh, pronouncing the scriptures, which is, um, heralding a blessing, proclaiming a blessing. Um, like it's the deep story. And so last week, that's what I miss most about, you know, for the first time in 26 years, 25 years, not being a parish pastor. Wow. And, but at these, at these, um, 
weeks on Friday at the end of our um, cohort week, I say, before, right before we're done, people are departing to the airport, et cetera. I say, I want to pray a blessing over you. And I walk around behind each person. And if they allow me, I lay a hand on their shoulder. And, and then I ask the God who loves us to, to pour out his love on them, to remind them of what is deeply true. And then on Saturday, we had a graduation for, um, for Western, our, our seminary. And we have this moment. It's at the end. It's after we've done all of the, the pomp and circumstance. And the graduates are all seated. And we're in this you know, beautiful, um, old uh, stained glass, stone, Gothic um, church building. And the light is streaming in. And they ask the faculty to st to stand, mm -hmm. and we stand, and we turn to the graduates who are seated, and then they ask all the parents to stand and friends to stand. Everyone's standing. So the whole church is essentially surrounding these graduates, and then they ask us to raise our hands, and then we then we start to sing a song, mm. and that song is one we all know. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And I can tell you, um, this is now my second year, I guess, in that spot. I can't hold back tears. Mm. I try to catch their eyes because I want them to hear the deep words amid a world of, that is everything but blessing. Amid a world that, um, even a religious world that, um, that teaches us that God's deep heart for us isn't blessing. Mm. The fears of as they go into this world, will they have anything to say, anything to offer? Um, I want them to know more than anything else that God's heart is for them, mm. and I can't imagine anything else more important and vital than that. To be leaving seminary, knowing deep in your being, God's heart is for me, right? If God is with me, who can be against me? If I am the chaste after one, right? If there's nothing I can do to ca that causes God to love me any less or any more, right? To have that revelation, you're right. Then we can go into darkness and we can be sustained, and we can be um, ambassadors. And 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 I think when, as you say it, I think where I go that I'm encouraged is I can face the next impossible, right? There's just so much of this journey of apprenticeship, of discipleship, that we're always facing some impossibility if we are really engaging in risk. And we're really living in a way where we are putting it all on God. And so I, I, I love the image of that, the song, the blessing, the fellowship, the strength of a community of people saying, um, we're with you. And so is your God. It's so beautiful. And if you think about a lot of the um, crisis moments we're in in North America with the church and our clamoring for power and trying to hold on and trying to figure, you know, if, 
if we're operating as those who are blessed, um, we don't have to fear anything. <laughs> mm. We don't have to protect anything. We can boldly um, follow the one who calls us to die because um, what's death to someone who's who's already been into death and back? Mm. And, and, and if that is the one who is blessing me, if that is the one who's calling me to come and follow, even if it's into the valley of the shadow of death, um, there's nothing to fear. Mm. You know, you speak of that in the book, this, this misunderstanding of death and you relate it beautifully to baptism. And I just love it because you said, um, you know, it's this beautiful story of a gal courageously, an elderly woman courageously fighting for a fellow prisoner, you know, in a losing battle against cancer. And how many of us know that story mm-hmm. far too well. And, you know, through the voice of Jonas, you, you're describing the frustration um, that she was feeling perhaps that God, God should do better, but she forgot that baptism doesn't promise an escape from death. Instead, it promises that our deaths, plural, of every kind will not finish us. God's love will hold us up. God's love will, in the end, raise us up so we can let loose. We can laugh. We can breathe free. Our life is not ours to hold together. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about a blessing. I mean, that, mm-hmm. just those words, it's just a benediction. Um, what do you see when you are walking with this next generation of young disciples when they are essentially being invited to die. What, what is that like? Because as you're articulating so well in the book, and as you know, the invitation of baptism is an immersion into death. And as you said, in order that we can move through and know death never has the last word. What right. do you see? I mean, I see hope because <laughs> I don't, I don't know any other way. Yeah. I think we've, pretty well demonstrated that um there's no way around death and um i love the line from chris green where he says uh uh the son of god died because we humans die mm. <laughs> that god would descend into every broken and destitute place that humans have ever known. Mm. And um I I guess we resist death because and 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 death, you know, the 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 hundreds of deaths we die along the way. Deaths to our images of ourselves, deaths to our expectations, deaths to the things we hope to accomplish, deaths to our ego, um, deaths to our pride. And we are constantly holding and clinging and fighting. And I think that maybe it, for most of us, it does require a lifetime. I mean, we have to, it requires a lifetime to trust that God loves us. <laughs> um, it, 
it re- requires a lifetime to trust that death is not the end of us mm. because God has conquered death. And, and so I, I, in some respects, you know, I just want to encourage people, uh, the, all of us, myself, but anyone who's just on this starting this journey of, um, be patient, listen to the voice of love, uh, find ways to, to surrender. <laughs> um, because surrender is the way of hope. Mm. Oh, I mean, that that's like a whiskey shot right there. It's distilled and curated. I just, I find myself wanting to pause. Surrender is the way of hope. When in the theme of death, I, I want to visit the chapter in Love Big, Be Well, that um, was a death of Jonas that really arrested me. It, it was really the chapter that um, I, I think in full disclosure hit home the hardest, and it's the chapter titled An Apology. And what we find here for the readers that haven't yet read the book, I really hope you will, all of you that are shepherds and shepherdesses, um, Jonas is frustrated, right? He's just got back from another conference with shiny things, shiny messages, shiny conclusions, exclamation points, people trying to make everyone there feel shiny. And these are beat up battered, I should say, beaten down pastors. And he's he's pretty annoyed and gives a message in a letter of, you can just see he's, he's kind of ticked off and he doesn't have a lot of grace for the people offering this conference. And what's so beautiful about this chapter is the letter before this is him kind of like, hey, well, I have an audience and a microphone. I got a couple of <laughs> things to say, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next, it's so beautiful where he simply says in, in, in a few more words than this, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And I want to make amends. And, and when I think the reason why this hit me so hard is I spend a lot of time with the privilege of walking with powerful men and men that have consented to a path and process of initiation of spiritual formation over time. And one of the greatest lacks, I would say, if someone were to ask me the question, where are leaders missing the mark? When I look at my own life, and I look at men entrusted to my care, I would say one of the most bold themes is forgiveness, is genuine ownership of the wrongs, the ways I have violated others, I've violated um, relationship. And, and I've been learning from Tim Keller over the last 12 months, just really revisiting the deep path and process of 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 the whole cycle of forgiveness that moves us to understanding how much we've been forgiven 
and then really a consents to a, a willingness to reconcile that forgiveness really is not complete until we are engaging actively in a desire to reconcile because all of life in the kingdom is relation relationally centered. And so Tim Keller has been a, a beautiful mentor on this, but I, I was really moved, you know, Jonas gets pissed. I can relate to that. And that feels normal. But when he writes the next letter and says, I listened to my people and I have something to own. And that was actually not about them. That was about me. Why is it that you dipped into this really daring space on apology? Well, probably because I think pastors need to apologize more. Um, mm. and humans need to apologize more and dads need to apologize more and moms and friends. I, I just don't, I mean, I, so I've wronged my sons so many times. I have two college age sons and you know, the joke in our house is we have for, since they were born, we've been putting some money into the college fund and some money into the therapy fund, you know, <laughs> but I really find uh, with my sons, like when I've wronged them, they don't, they're not asking for a pound of flesh. Yes. They really just want me to know that I see <laughs> and I see the, the harm I've done. And they're so quick to forgive if I genuinely um, meet them in their wound. And, and the reason that I wouldn't meet them in their wound is again, like what we were talking about earlier, it's because I'm trying to protect something. I'm trying to protect my image of myself or what I think is their image of me. Um, there's nothing more courageous than being able to own uh, the fact that we are immensely flawed and broken and that we need help and rescue. And it's, I mean, Christians of all people, it's bewildering to me. Everything that we say we believe, all that we profess is uh, has its grounding in the fact that we are in desperate need of help mm. and that left to ourselves, we will harm and ruin and screw up ourselves and others. And so it just seems like the most basic thing in the world that we need to say, I have done wrong. I need help. Mm. It, it is such a paradox, isn't it? Because to come with our need feels like a sort of weakness. And yet it's an invitation to gain a strength beyond anything we ever knew was available. That's right. That's right. My friend, Mandy Smith, she's a pastor and a writer and an artist. And she talks so much about how she she really minds this this thing that um, that the scriptures teach us that God's strength is made strong and perfect in in weakness. Yes, and yet weakness is precisely the thing that we run from. And and she has a book on vulnerability and how we resist this. Like 
we want to be seen as the expert. We want to be this, the the seen as the one who always has the answer and makes the right leadership choice and um, responds properly and doesn't really need help. And how massively destructive that is to the human soul and body and how anti-gospel it is. Mm. Of mm. course we need help. I, I mean, of course I'm going to have some bad days where... Man, if you catch me on that day, you're just going to get me at my worst. Yes. And and that's why we need grace and we need one another and we need to not hide. Mm. You know, speaking of one another, I know our time is coming to a close. And I want to ask you one more question. And I want to put it in the context of just the treasure that you lay out in this book um, through these letters from Jonas. I think the context of the question, when is you have given your life to becoming a shepherd, a guide for souls to draw closer and closer to the heart of God in the context of community. You've faithfully been at a post at a seminary training the next generation, and you faithfully shepherded a local community for a quarter of a century. And so there's just this awe, there's this stature. You you have the miles, you've done the work. Um, and, and I have profound respect for, from, I have profound respect for you in that regard. In the book, you, you quote Wendell Berry, this naturalist farmer, and as you say, the unintentional theologian, which I love. And this is the quote that you share from Wendell, farming by the measure of nature, which is to say the nature of the particular place, means farmers must tend to farms they know and love, farms small enough to know and love, using tools and methods they know and love in the company of neighbors they know and love. This is true for farmers, true for friends, true for pastors, and true for all of us. There's some truth in those words that we must know and we must love. And, and this is an opportunity when, as we close, you're turning to this next generation and you've seen the heartache, you see the world in which we live, you see the struggles. What, what is it that you want them to know? What, what, what is it that you want, were wanting to share through that quote that's embodied in your life's work that, that you wanna make sure they don't go forward without this idea? Hmm. Well, what comes to, to mind at the moment is to trust and genuinely believe and give themselves to the truth that everything begins and ends with love. And that means everything begins and ends with God. I think that there is um, an inherent fear that dogs are life because we think we have to make something of ourselves, that makes us use others rather than love them, use a place rather than love it, to manage and force and push rather than receive the gift of something. And 
if our scriptures tell us anything, they tell us that everything is a gift mm. and everything is love. And that is not a weak word. That is a strong and powerful and potent word, love. And it's it's the reality that conquers death. And it's the reality that opens us to life. And it remakes a heart and it remakes a neighborhood and it remakes um, a vision for our future. So trust, love, that is God. Mm. When on behalf of so many younger men following behind you, believing through your life that it's possible, it's possible to love, it's possible to hold on to hope in the face of relentless hopelessness, that it's possible to love big and to be well in this world. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for doing the slow, steady work. Thank you for becoming the kind of person that can be entrusted with this message. Thank you for your risk and your bravery to pursue Eugene as a pastor to pastors, to ask some questions, to draw close, and to become a trusted friend in such that he would trust you to bring us the story of his life, who has become the most influential pastor of modern history. Thank you for being at your post. And friends, I urge you to turn to some of these creative works that Wynn has put into the world. Slow down, sink in, let it find its way in you. And together, by day and by decade, we can love a little bigger and we can be a bit more well. Win, thanks for the time. Thank you for such a meaningful conversation. Yeah. What's the best way that people can find you and what you've been entrusted with? Uh, my writing website is wincollier.com and the Peterson Center is just petersoncenter.org. Friends, let's close as we always do with a 90-second pause, a 90-second transition, a 90-second space to simply be with God. I invite you here, recover your breath, be still, and know God is with you. Take these 90 seconds as a gift from the Father heart of God to you. And we'll see you again on the next episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Thank you.